0: First Corinthians 15. We're going to jump in here. Um, I was talking to Nate earlier this week at Seminary Chapel on Tuesday, just reflecting on, so Nathan, do you think I ought to be in James? I never teach anything or talk about anything but the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday, but there's been so many weeks that we've been away from James. He uh, suggested that I stay there, and uh, but built me a bridge in part by saying, "Hey, you remember that our author was an eyewitness to a resurrected Savior, and uh, it was life changing." And uh, I want to begin with the record of that reality in First Corinthians fifteen, and just kind of calibrate you for the morning if it hasn't occurred already. You know, James, the author of the book that we're studying was not a follower, was not a believer, but a skeptic and somewhat sarcastic with regard to the claims of his half-brother Jesus. It's hard, quite hard to imagine you can grow up in the home where he grew up um, and not be impacted by the caliber, quality, characteristics, just the undeniable evidence that this is no normal human being. This is God with us. But James was not converted as a young man. He was converted after this experience, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I make known to you, writes Paul, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, on the good news, the message which is good, which I preached, to you, aorist tense, somewhere along the line, I proclaimed a message to you, which also you received, aorist tense, point in time, I preached it, you heard it, you welcomed it, decamai, you opened the door to your heart and life, and a transaction occurred, which also you received, in which you also stand, the perfect tense, you stand and you continue to stand, you received it. And you keep on receiving it and standing in it by way of its veracity and truth. Verse 2, by which also you are saved. Present tense. You're saved point in time. There's an ongoing saving reality being worked out in your life called sanctification. You are being saved. "...by which also you are being saved, if you hold fast the word..." This is the gospel that he preached, "...which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain..." Now, I take that to mean either your heart is consisting of shallow soil, you're a taster, Hebrews 6, not a believer, John chapter 2, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in them. There was a kind of belief that was superficial and shallow, amazed at your work, but not really trusting in your identity and the ultimate Reality that you're professing, unless you believed in vain, meaning you started but you didn't continue, but I, I would rather see it as believed in vain, because, as he'll go on to say in this passage, if Christ isn't resurrection, resurrected, verse 14, your faith is in vain because you're believing in nothing. So unless you believed in vain, forecasting that whatever's been told you in this gospel is not the truth, it's vanity. It's manufactured. So, as long as you're believing in something true, your faith is not vain. You're not believing in something empty, worthless shallow. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance, here's the gospel, here's the rudiment foundational pillars of its truth, the gospel, first importance with what I also received, so he was a welcomer of this truth, that Christ died, number one, for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was buried because he really died. Some people say he swooned. He kind of was out of it but He wasn't out of it. He suffered the sting of death. For our sins He died, for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised—Easter Sunday, Celebration Sunday, Resurrection Sunday—raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, the disciples, that After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, some gathering, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, if you want to know if this is true, go ask somebody, because they're still alive, most of them. And then watch this, verse 7. Then he appeared to James, not to 500 and James, to James. Now, I just want to begin by saying, can you imagine that if when you got up this morning, there was a resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, standing by your bedside? Would this day be just a whisker different? And if you're vacillating and lax and somewhat passive as a follower of Christ. Maybe I will, maybe I won't, maybe I'll commit, maybe I won't. Sometime in the future, I'll make a decision to really lock down and lock in. I talk to those kinds of people all the time. The procrastinating passive, not the proactive pursuing. But I'll, I'll bet, and I'm not a betting man, but I use that term as a figure of speech. I'll bet if you saw Jesus Christ alive from the dead in your room today, you would be different than you were yesterday. You believe that? Amen. And I don't care what changes needed to occur. They would have begun this morning. Because you would be absolutely undeniable, undeniably convinced that who Jesus said he was, he truly was. And if the truly resurrected Savior, God himself, dead, buried, alive from the grave, appeared it with you in person, it would be transformational. It would change your life. And I think it's out of that reality that we benefit not just from who James was, but listen to me, who James wants you to be because Jesus is who he said he was. James chapter 1, now turn there. James chapter 1. Writes this letter, oldest book in the New Testament to dispersed Christians, diaspora like seeds, sown all over the Roman Empire because of persecution, gospel seed. And James is the head of the church at Jerusalem, apparently receiving words back, reports back, about believers professing but not living, writes this little letter, powerful, prophetic in terms of its, its imperative flavor. This is a head coach talking to his team saying, you've got to play the game this way. And by the way, if you're from UCLA, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Nearly no time on the clock, and some guy from Gonzaga banks it in. And I didn't even hear him call glass. It just went in, and UCLA is sad today. So be sympathetic for those who can't seem to get the resurrection spirit today. Because something in them died yesterday. (laughs) So here he is. Church dispersed. Here's what real faith looks like. If you're genuinely transformed, these are the validating evidences. Because real genuine faith works. Otherwise, that faith is dead. It is vain. It is worthless. Sixty imperatives. These are the characteristics I like to call James real Christianity, the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. You want to measure yourself? You can go to 1 John. There's tests there. Love, obedience, your view of who Jesus is. James is another testing tool. This is what you ought to look like. This is non-negotiable. If you've been changed, you ought to live in a changed way. You ought to calibrate by this model, which is rooted in the word of God by which you were transformed. You were brought forth, verse 18, by the exercise of his will, by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You were born again to a living hope, Johnny quoted it earlier, through the word of God, So that you would look like a worshiper that was transformed and changed by the Spirit of God. You're the first of a kind. And anybody in your family, anybody in your circle of influence who doesn't see Christ-like first fruit in you is denied the evidence of the Christ who's alive from the dead, who is a kind of first fruit also. 1 Corinthians 15. He has been raised. He's the first of his kind. You're a kind of that kind, and that is to be manifest by the way you live, not by the words that come out of your mouth. Words matter, but lifestyle matters. Convictions matter. Behavior matters. So this book is and again, as a reminder, for those of you that have been with us for a while, this was nearly two years ago. We were in this book, and we've been off, out of it for a year. This is Harry's high-speed journey back to chapter 2, verse 14, where we ended. Okay, so this is highlights. This is not the details. I love the details, but this is not the details. This is to remind you how much of a trip we've already taken, and then there's a bunch of you that are new to us for whatever reason, and I don't want to leave you at the rest stop in New Jersey, because we're headed to California, and we're going to pick up this story or this exhortation, this letter in chapter 2 soon, but today I'm bringing you up to speed. We've already talked about faith properly understood is integrated in all of life and shows up in everything. That's a big idea. Real Christians, chapter 1, 1 through 18, deal with difficulty differently than somebody who doesn't have genuine faith. They deal with it differently and successfully, whether it's outward difficulty, 2 through 8, financial difficulty, 9 and 10, inward difficulty, 11 through 18. Real, genuine faith is proven by how it deals with difficulty. Number two, where we were last week, verses 19 through 25, real Christians are changed by the word of truth and are changing by the word of truth. They have received it, verse 21, and they continue to receive it. It has been planted like seed bearing fruit, and the ongoing implanting of the Scripture will be transformational. If you're a Christian, a real Christian, you need to hear it, the Bible, read it, memorize it, meditate on it, pray it, share it, and apply it. Why? Because real Christians, verse 22, proactively seek and diligently apply the truth. What are hearers? They are auditors. They are, I want to learn, note takers. But verse 22 says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers. Hearers isn't somebody just showed up because some parent said, it's Easter Sunday, you got to go to church today. (sighs) Okay. So I get dressed up and I sit in the pew and I endure whatever's happening. I hear a few words. That is not a hearer. A hearer is a note taker. I'm here because I want to be. I'm an auditor. A real Christian wants to learn. But they not only want to learn, listen, they want to change. That's what is meant in verse 22, not merely hearers who delude themselves. I didn't emphasize this last week, but delude means you're insane. Logizomai is rational, para, alongside of rationality. So if this is rationality, you're over here. Yeah, but I'm a note taker. I even have the notes when Harry taught this a year and a half ago. (laughs) That's not the test question. The test question is not whether you have the notes. The test question is what has changed in your life because of those notes. That's the test. Otherwise, this is reason, and you're somewhere over here. You're irrational. If you think coming to church and learning and listening is the goal, you're deceived. You're insane. And I don't mean that ugly. I mean that honestly. It's irrational. So real Christians proactively seek and diligently apply the truth, not just enthusiastically learn the truth. Genuine faith is proven not only by how often it hears the Word, but how effectively it applies the Word. This passage, verses 23 and 25 through 25, the Word of God is meant to change you, not just to illuminate or educate you like looking in a mirror. Let me make one more bottom-line statement. If you're not applying it, the Bible, the living Word of God, if you're not doing it, you are wasting it. It accomplishes nothing. Now for today. Highlights from verses 26 and 27. Here's how I see this connecting. How could you potentially deceive yourself? This is the principle applied to one pragmatic area, verse 26, one practical area, and it has to do with your tongue. If anyone... If anyone, no exceptions or exclusions, no restrictions. It doesn't matter who you are or how religious or well-known. If anyone, verse 26, thinks. Udakeo, he has a strong subjective conviction. He owns an opinion. He thinks himself. The tense of the verb is right now, tomorrow, and yesterday. This is the way I view myself. These are the convictions. This is my opinion. If anyone, no matter who they are, who thinks themselves to be religious. I want to talk religious for a minute. Religious comes from the the Greek word to tremble or to fear. Threskos from treo to tremble. Ceremonially religious. Committedly religious. Religious. I'm doing the things God fears do. I'm committed. I'm not just a lip service person. I'm a grace church person. I'm not just here on Easter Sunday. I'm not just here at Christmas. I'm in. I'm committed. I'm a god fear. If anyone, no matter who they are or what rank or station they have, no matter what their age or their maturity by way of training and experience if anyone thinks himself to be a God-fearer, a religious person, a pious worshiper, and yet does not, and yet does not, in other words, you're about to hear a contradiction, and yet does not bridle his own tongue, his own tongue, not someone else's tongue, his own tongue. bridle means to, you understand this, whatever it is that restrains, directs, an animal, a horse, a mule, whatever it is you're riding with some desire to control it, this is the tool of control. And if anyone does not restrain or restrict or direct his tongue, he doesn't tame it, he doesn't manage it. Irrespective of what he thinks about himself, Watch what it says. He deceives his own heart. Now listen, there's something different about me deceiving you because I know I'm deceiving you. That's dark. But this is more deadly because it's self-deception. He deceives himself. He thinks he's religious, but he's not. He tactically is blinded by his presumptions, irrespective of his actions, as it relates to what? This, my tongue, our tongue. This man's religion is what? Worthless. Worthless, that is to say, no value, no benefit. It's vain. It's unreal. It has no purpose. It has no basis. It is a false claim with false hope. It's irrational, and it's the self-deception. Be like me building a set of wings and jumping off the top of my house, thinking I could fly. That's self-deceived. I built these. They'll help me fly. And once I jump, I realize my faith was vain in those homemade wings. I don't know if you watch any of the YouTube videos of guys who make flying things to attach to their body, and then you see the evidence of that lack of engineering prowess. (laughs) It's foolish. And I do that too, because you watch a guy crash and burn, and it's funny, you assume he survived because it's on YouTube, and the bottom line is, is that kind of person has a kind of faith that does as much for them, that religion, as those homemade wings do for those would-be flyers. Word of God is meant to change you and keep on changing you, and one of the foundational measuring sticks of whether you are changed and being changed. If you're truly a God-fearer, not a self-professed one, not a self-deceived one, but a real one, a real Christian with real biblical convictions, it's manifest in what comes out of your mouth. Otherwise, that man's religion is worthless. Now, just ten quick things. What comes out of your mouth? And these are not the details. These are the highlights. What are you to bridle your tongue from? Number one, much speech. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. Bridle your tongue from talking too much. Number two, rash speech, rash words, words without enough thought no filter speech Proverbs 12:18 Rash speakers like piercings of a sword they injure the tongue of the wise is healing Quick to hear slow to speak third hurtful words real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from hurtful words words that injure destructive to the heart Words. This is 1 Peter 3.10. Whoever wants to love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil. Contextually, that's injurious speech. And his lips from deceitful speech. This is retaliatory words. No insult for insult or evil for evil. You hurt me with words, I'm going to hurt you back with words. You bridle your tongue from that. It is the most natural thing for you to be slapped and to slap back. It is just not verbally slapped back. It is just not a Christian thing to do. You want to love life and see good days? You refrain The word refrain isn't strong enough. You stop, you absolutely stop, you end it right now, responding in kind. No hurtful words. Yeah, but they hurt me. That's not the issue. The issue is, who are you, and what do you want them to see? Carnality or spirituality? Humanity or Christ-like Christianity? Jesus gives a blessing. Instead, he doesn't respond in kind. So should we. Listen, this involves all the damn you, you go to hell, all the things that people say, even Christian people say, bridle your tongue. If that's your speech habit and pattern, you deceive yourself. And whatever spiritual wings you have, The end game for you is catastrophic because your religion is worthless. How do I know what comes out of my mouth? Fourthly, bridle your tongue. Real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from untruthful, manipulative, or deceptive words. This is lies and verbal trickery. This is everything from an outright, I'm a politician, and I does not care what reality is. I'm just going to tell you what I want you to hear. To a car salesman who tells you what he believes you want to hear, irrespective of what represents reality, but it's not obvious. And if you're a politician or used car salesman, I'm sorry for the stereotype, but most of us understand that stereotype. This is Psalm 34, 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Speaking lies in that context is manipulative speech, dalas, from deceptive words, partial truths. Keep your... Tongue from evil and your lips from deceptive speech. Number five: real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from destructive words, words that tear down, not build up the spirit. Ephesians 4:29: No unwholesome word like spoiled meat. Unwholesome is corrupt. No foul words that don't build up the spirit should proceed from your mouth. But only, do you hear only such a word as is good for edification? How many options to only do you have? No options. Question is, will this build up their spirit or will this tear down their spirit? Will this strengthen them or tear down their sense of worth and value? Someone has said a Christian speech is to reverse the negative verdicts by speaking only words of building up truth. Think what you would do at a funeral, talking about someone who's departed. You're going to find a way to say something good. How do I respond? I respond with words of blessing, words that make souls stronger. Listen, one of the best outreach tools of any church is the community of grace and edifying speech that is produced in that community. No hurtful words. Number six, real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from grace-stealing words. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up edification according to the need of the moment. Here it is, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Here's what you bridle your tongue from. Words that steal the joy of God's favor. That's what grace is. The delight of God's grace. You just take that away from somebody. Instead of giving grace, you steal it. You don't minister grace, you take it. Grace-stealing words, you're worthless, you're ugly, you'll never amount to much, you're such a disappointment to me, I hate you, you should be ashamed of yourself, hey, I should have never married you, you know what those words do? They suck the life out of a soul. And if you don't bridle your tongue, and look, some of you are more challenging. Some of us, I should say, are more challenging than others to bridle. I mean, some of you know we raised horses. We've had up to 10 horses at a time. You have different kinds of bits for different kinds of horses. A different thing that goes into their mouth. And some horses need really significant deterrence to keep them from doing what they want to do and going where they want to go. We're not in James chapter 3 yet, but you're going to read about a restless evil, a little rudder that turns a big boat, a little spark that lights a devastating, catastrophic fire. This member of your body, which no man can fully tame. We all stumble in many ways, especially with this instrument. But the consistent pattern of this instrument, you do what it takes. You introduce whatever severe influence is necessary to keep this member from running away with you to your destruction and to the injury of people. I bought a horse in Atlanta, Georgia. Show-type horse. I'm telling you, it looked like King Arthur's horse from some movie on television. It was a Morgan horse. He was a stallion, now gelded. He looked like I should own him. It was a man's horse. I get on that horse, I get respect. I remember the lady saying, now be careful when you get on to him. He likes to move out. That was an understatement. (laughs) The reason this horse was for sale is not because he didn't look like he belonged in the movies. It's because Pepper had an attitude which says, I'm going whether you want to go or not. And in God's gracious kindness, and I am a novice cowboy, but I'm also energized when threatened. And when he moved out, he just kept getting faster and faster. Whoa, whoa. And then all of a sudden it was obvious to me, this, this guy, he didn't stop it. <laughs> so in one great effort, and somehow what, what horses do is they bite the bit to keep it from getting to the tender part. And I got it past the teeth all the way back. And guess what this majestic animal did? He stopped. Now listen, that jerk hurt him. I am not an abuser, but I wasn't about to be taken on a pony express ride to my own destruction. (laughs) Some of you have tongues that need severe restraint. You need to introduce sufficient influence to eliminate the pattern of grace stealing, soul injurious words. Beloved, Brothers and sisters, certain words should never come out of your mouth. I don't care if you heard them from your father, I don't care if you heard them from your siblings, I don't care if some coach yelled and screamed at you. You are a Christian. You need to have a faith that's validated, not but just because you say I'm a believer. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, died for my sins, is alive from the grave. You need to be more than a lip service professor. You need to be a validated, I'm bridling my tongue as an evidence of the faith that I possess in Jesus Christ. Because real Christianity has convictions about what it says. Grace-giving words. Only such a word as builds up. Only words that minister grace to those who hear Let me give you some grace-giving words. You matter. You're made in the image of God, just like a perfect God wanted. That's a good word. You're loved at your best and your worst. Everybody thinks love is performance-driven. Real love is never performance-driven. You're uniquely gifted fearfully and wonderfully made. Imagine being a child and somebody saying that to you. You're God's child and a vessel of the Holy Spirit. I see potential in you. I value you. I respect you. I'm proud of you. I like you. I appreciate. I I appreciate you. I love you. Hey, and I love you when you, and fill in the blank. I'll tell you what that is. That's grace-giving words. Real Christians speak like that. And I, uh, I know I punctuated it the last time we went through this together, but I want to say it again. Ephesians 4.30, after it says, No unwholesome word, but only such a word, builds up according to the need of the moment, ministering grace to those who hear. Does anybody remember what the next verse says? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Attached to this instrument is the capacity to not only hurt others, to not only hurt yourself, but listen to this, to hurt God. The word grieve, the word grieve is to cause or to express deep emotional pain severe sorrow like the loss of a loved one whatever it is you feel whatever that anguish is that grief comes to the heart of God when this is an unbridled instrument of destruction number seven real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from crass and cuss words Ephesians 5.4, filthy, perverse, inappropriate, offensive, and rude speech. There should be no obscenity, that's the word filthiness, foolish talk, moral legia, or crude joking, which are out of character with whom? A Christian. I said this before, I'm going to say it again. You should not be careless and ignoble with your speech. Somehow in Christianity, with the abundance of grace and the extreme thoughts of radical grace, there's this idea that I can say what I want, I can sound like the world, I can talk like the world, I can dress like the world, I can tell jokes like the world, and somehow that's okay. Christians shouldn't cuss. They shouldn't use the language of ignoble people. And I use that term because if you're a Christian, you're a son of God or a daughter of God. You're a citizen of a kingdom and you represent the king. And no king's child should represent him with words that are unlike his kingdom. That's what Ephesians 5 is about. Don't speak like this. Don't live in an immoral way. It is not fitting. There should be no cussing preachers and there should be no cussing Christians. Nothing crass, nothing crude. You know why? You represent God and this instrument reflects that transformation. Do you agree with that? Now, listen, this isn't for the person sitting next to you, this is for you because this is about self deception. And listen, as Christians, you say, well, I don't cuss. No, you've just figured out how to use words that substitute for those words. You've figured out how to say hurtful things the Christian way. Don't deceive yourself. Christians should represent the highest sense of the culturally honorable, not play in the filth of the culturally dishonorable Christians are to be different, not because they're weird, but because they're good in a good way. Biblically, love forbids rude. It does not behave in an unseemly way. It's not indecent. Colossians 3, Now you must put aside all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Listen, in every human culture... There are words that represent vulgarity. Those are not your vocabulary words. Number eight, stupid speech. Real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from, and I know this is an inflammatory word, but I used it on purpose, stupid speech. Morologia, the words of a moron, are inappropriate. And I call this empty words from an empty head. By using lightweight words or making weighty words light. And what do I mean by that? Damn you is using a weighty word in a lightweight way. Damn is not a word to be used casually. That's what I mean. The kind of speech using lightweight words... The kind of talk which is tasteless, senseless, stupid, foolish, not suited to instruct, edify, profit, chit-chat. The talk of someone who has no sense, no elevated thought, and a low sense of right and wrong. That's moralogia. Should not even be named among you. And then throwing away words that matter. Some people use our Savior's name, Jesus. I'm frustrated. I use his name as if that name doesn't have weight, worth, and value. When that name gets mentioned, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. How in the world do you take that name of that stature and that honor and use it in any way that's not honorable? You can't. You shouldn't. And if that's the pattern, you deceive yourself. You're Religious claims are worthless, which means there's no value to it. Your faith is vain, you're living a lie, you're lost, not found, you're dead, not alive, you're not in the kingdom, you're outside of it. And how do I know that? How do we know that? Because your tongue reveals it. Bridle your tongue. Don't debase and cheapen great realities. Minister grace to those who hear. Number nine, suggestively, sexually rather suggestive speech. Real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from sexually suggestive speech. This is the word crude joking in Ephesians 5.4. No obscenity, foolish talk, moral agia, or crude joking, which is out of character, inconsistent with representing Christ and noble Christianity. Crude joking, coarse jesting, words that you use that are not overt, it's wit to create a lustful, wanton kind of outcome. You're cool, but you're uncool as a Christian. People smile at your capacity, but it's coarse and crude and unfitting, off color. Real Christians bridle their tongue from such things. Bridle your tongue from any word that promotes carnality and ignobility. Real Christians finally, number 10, bridle their tongue from gossip. Gossip and slander. This is 2 Corinthians 12.20. Though all these concerns for inappropriate Christian conduct can be displayed with the tongue, two are explicitly verbal. This is what Paul writes. I'm afraid that perhaps when I come I might find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to not be what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, and Gossip. When I show up, I'm hopeful I don't find what I may find. You may not be pleased with me, and I'm not going to be pleased with you with, because of what may be characterized in you that I see on display, strife, jealousy, anger, tempers, disputes, slanders, and gossip. Let me talk gossip just briefly. Bearing bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart bearing bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart. You want to hurt them, not help them. You're not sharing a prayer request. You're undermining who they are and what's going on. You're using this to feign interest when, in fact, you are not interested. It's bad news, not good news. And they have no clue that you're sharing this news to their detriment. That's gossip bearing bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart. Sinful gossip is all three of those things. Bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, Psalm 101.5, David representing the heart of God. Listen to this. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, in other words, they don't know it, The words are negative and hurtful and destructive. It's injurious negative speech. It's bad news. Slander out of a bad heart. It's a secret behind their back. Listen to what David said representing the heart of God. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Gossips, slanderers, God-haters... God says, I will destroy those who have the heart and behavior of a gossip. Here's the foundational reality perspective of a real Christian and how you need to think. Most offensive language is simply contrary to ministering grace and living out of grace you've received. Most of the problem with this instrument is it's inconsistent with what you've been given the real Christian perspective is a failure to bridle my tongue can destroy. Death and life, Proverbs eighteen twenty one are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Blessing and loss, rather blessing or loss, death or life. The real Christian's daily resolve, I will bridle my tongue. It matters to the glory of God among the wicked. Psalm 39.1, I said, I will watch my ways so that I will not sin with my tongue, says the psalmist. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are present. The implication of that is I'm not going to ruin my testimony when any unbeliever who endeavors to measure Christianity by my life and conduct, I'm going to watch my mouth. Because I know the power of my mouth to represent or misrepresent. Here's the real Christian's daily prayer. Daily ask God to help you bridle your tongue. Psalm 141.3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep a watch at the door of my lips. The sentry guard. God, you measure my words. You stand right here and remind me that you're listening to everything I say because a real Christian validates their Christianity by the words that come out of their mouth. If anyone considers and thinks and has the opinion, sincerely believed that I'm a religious person, I'm a God-fearer, I'm a grace church member, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ who does not bridle as a practice of life, not perfectly, but consistently. Who does not bridle his tongue, his own tongue. He deceives himself. And that claim of religion, that worshiper, that is worthless. Isn't that sobering? So, How would we measure ourselves as a Christian? With our tongue. Because self-deception and unapplied, you know, if you're taking notes today and I see some of you scrambling, somebody goes, written right here in the column of my Bible, this is what we covered. The question to ask yourself is what changes because this is true? Because you need to prove yourselves a doer and not a hearer only. You know why? Because real Christians control their tongue. Verse 27, they visit the vulnerable, they help the helpless, and they stay unstained from the world. Listen, some of you live in a locker room, as it were. I played lots of sports. You can get used to language that should not be your language. You can traffic with friends and workmates that use terms and words and have conversations that should never be a part of your speech and conduct. Be noble and be a Christian because the wicked are watching, and so is the most holy and high God. Represent him on Resurrection Sunday, and on Resurrection Monday, and on Resurrection Week Friday. Can you say amen? Amen. Hey, he is risen. risen Let's live like it. It changed James. Could it not change us? Father, thank you for the morning and the opportunity. So much to say. So much to be learned. Oh, God. But we need grace to apply it. Lord, he who can manage his tongue is a mature man, James will go on to say. Lord, we want to be mature men and women. We want to grow in grace. Set a watch by our mouth muzzle our lips so that we don't injure and bite and respond in kind we don't talk too much we don't talk too fast we're not carnal and lustful and or well, we're not hurtful we're life-giving grace commending soul strengthening whether it's at home or in the marketplace Honor yourself by the words of our lips to the glory and honor of the one who's alive today and all God's people said, amen. Amen.